I called the course personality and its transformations and I think you could think about that as a restatement of the idea of being and becoming and that's what you are you're for whatever that means you're an entity that both is and is transforming and there, there's a rule that goes along with that by the way which is don't sacrifice who you could be for who you are which means if you have to choose to transform in a positive direction or maintain your current position then it's better to transform in a positive direction so you might even think of that as the core of your being that's a Piagetian idea it's a Jungian idea as well who are you you're the thing that transforms who you are now you're also who you are but on top of that you're the thing that transforms who you are and I, I do think that that's and that's not an arbitrary statement you know um, one of the things that modern universities do dreadfully now is convince their students that value structures are relative and that and that's a that's a big mistake it's there's a lot of things wrong with that idea and one of the things that's wrong with that idea is that doesn't include what I just mentioned which is that's a good moral rule is you are the thing that is and you're the thing that becomes and you should put the thing that becomes at a higher place than the thing that is that means you also have to allow yourself to shake off those things about you that you might be pathologically attached to habits and people for that matter ways of thinking all of those things you have to allow yourself to shake those off and that's more like a burning that's why the phoenix is that's why the phoenix is the symbol that it is right it's old and it deteriorates it bursts into flame and then it's reborn it's like well do you want to be reborn it's like well, that's not the question the question is do you want to burst into flame and the answer to that generally is no but that's the wrong answer the right answer is you let all that nonsense burn away and you know and you might say well i don't know what I should leave behind and the answer to that is that's a lie you know some of the things that you should leave behind you all you have to do is ask yourself you'll come up with a list instantly of a hundred stupid things that you're doing that you know you could stop doing some of them maybe you don't know you could stop doing it's like well fine leave those alone for now but there's a bunch of things you perfectly know well that you could stop doing that would improve your life and so do that see what happens that's a good that's a good idea all right so it's personality and it's transformations because partly I wanted to talk to you about talk to you about what you are as a human being and also as an individual but also what you could become and that's actually a crucial question in the domains of clinical psychology in particular because a lot of what you're doing with people as a clinician is trying to figure out who they could become that's right you come you have a problem your life isn't what it could be it's like fine let's see what it could be like if we changed it We'll figure out how to change it. That's got to be a negotiated dialogue, right? Because, like, I don't know what the hell you should do with your life. I can help you figure it out, maybe. We can talk about it. But you are the person who has to decide if the things that you're aiming for, you know, get you out of bed in the morning. Because that's really the, that's at least one of the crucial issues. So you've got to specify the goal. And then you've got to specify the transformation processes and start practicing them. And you have to understand that you're going to be bad at it, but it doesn't matter. Because bad's fine. Persistent is what you need to be. If you persist with tiny improvements if you persist you, you win so okay so in a broader in a, in a broader context you can think about this as a more fundamental ontological question so one the, the one question is how you should act in the world the other question is well what is the world and that's a complicated problem this this is a scientific answer to that question and that is that the world is a collection of objective phenomena and that's a very powerful perspective um, and we have a good method for determining what the world is like as a collection of objective phenomena 
and and that's made us very technologically powerful and so more power to us and all that but leaves a question unanswered and the question is well the world isn't just a place of objective phenomena because it's not a panoply of inert matter it has living conscious creatures in it and that's a different they're a different order of being and the fundamental issue for conscious active creatures is not what is the world from an objective perspective but how it is it that you should conduct yourself in the world and that's a and there's a very there's a kind of unbridgeable gap between those two domains of inquiry and i think the reason for that is that there's a the scientific method removes value from its descriptions that's actually what it does and so once you're left with value free descriptions it's very difficult to extract out a value proposition from them because you've that's the scientific method removes the value propositions you're supposed to be left with only that which is objective right and value propositions are in the domain of the subjective so i think the idea that you can derive what you should be or do from a collection of facts is flawed a because the collecting the facts themselves gets rid of the value structure but b there's an infinite number of facts and so which how are you going to pick which ones should guide you you can't you can't you you have to do something else the facts do not tell you what to do with the facts you need something else to help you figure that out well it's come to me over the years that that's what essentially that's what the narrative cognitive framework does it's the framework that we use to specify how we should act in the world and so you could divide the world into the world as it is and the world as perhaps it should be that gives you some direction and you need that and we know this technically right you need direction the reason for that is it's direction that produces the primary that produces primary positive emotion and so if you need positive emotion to move through life which you do because you can't even move without positive emotion and also positive emotion is a good bulwark against terror and pain if you need those things then you need direction you need a goal you need a value structure so that, that doesn't seem particularly disputable to me you could still say well what value structure it's like okay fine that's a good question but i i was you know i've thought a lot about that too so if we're going to adopt a value structure there's a couple of rules that go along with it and this is why the bloody postmodernists are wrong as far as i can tell is a it can't just be my value structure because i'm stuck with you and we're both stuck with all these other people and so if i'm going to lay out a value structure which is a way of interpreting the world let's say and there's an infinite number of potential ways of interpreting the world it's like yeah fine no problem except that i have to interpret the world in a way that i can use while i'm dealing with you and while the two of us are dealing with everyone else and while all of you are dealing with everyone else and so that that's the piagetian game proposition if you want to be a popular kid on the playground you better play games that other people want to play that's a brilliant 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 observation and i told you that piaget was trying to uh heal the rift between science and religion and that's one of the things that he did that he thought helped do that the question is well where do moral judgments come from well they partly come they emerge as a consequence of consensus and it's a bounded domain if we're going to if we're going to occupy the same space for any length of time and those are two critical propositions the same space and a long time then we have to figure out how to play an iterative game that doesn't spiral downward hopefully that might even improve that we both don't object to because otherwise it's not going to work right you'll walk away and play another game or the game will will disintegrate catastrophically so there's massive social constraint on what constitutes an appropriate frame of reference so so much for the relativist argument and then there's another issue that's equally 
relevant. And it, it's associated with the idea of objective reality to some degree. But it's not exactly, it's not, that's not exactly correct, because it's not exactly objective reality. Let's say that you and I decide to occupy the same place for some substantial amount of time, and we figured out how to solve the problem of being together. But you and I still have to figure out how to solve the problem of being together in a manner that doesn't make the world object too much. And it isn't just other people, although that's a huge part of the world. You want them to not object, you may even want them to support you, that would even be better. But you also have to deal with the, you know, the, the, the tendency of matter to object. Because so, your mode of being in the world, your interpretive framework, as a description of how you should act, is actually the laying out of a strategy that will produce the ends that it predicts, which are the things that you want. So this is the pragmatist perspective. This was worked out by William James and his people back in the late 1800s in New England, the only genuine brand of American philosophy. And what the pragmatist said is, how do you decide if something's true? The answer is, how the hell can you? You don't know anything. Well, that's true, but that isn't helpful because there you're stuck with the problem of how to be in the world. Well, so what you do is you lay out a mode of interpretation that has an endpoint. And then you run the mode of interpretation, embodied, right, because you act it out, and if it doesn't produce the outcome, then it's not, well, let's say, true. The claims within it aren't, they're not true by the definition of the game itself. So you might say, well, you're a kid on a playground, you want to play a game. One of the implicit demands is that the game is fun. If it's not fun, it's not worth playing. So you play it for a while, and then you see, well, was that fun? If the answer is yes, then you keep playing the game. You say, well, that game is, it's good enough, it's accurate enough, it's true enough. And so you lay out interpretations in the world, and they're subject to massive constraints. Other people have to go along with them and cooperate with you, because if they don't, then look the hell out like it's a major, serious, non-trivial constraint. And then the other thing is, well, social proof isn't good enough. It also has to work in the world outside of the social world. You know, so if you have an illness and you have some hypothesis about how to construe it, you might say, well, is my understanding of the illness correct? Well, it implies that I take these actions. Well, how do you know if it's correct? Well, you take the actions, and if the illness gets worse, then by the definitions that are implicit in the framework of reference that you're using, you've made an error. And so, there's no relativism in that. You could still say, well, there's a lot of potential solutions to any potential set of problems. It's like, yeah, yeah, there's lots of different ways to play chess on, on a single board. Right, but that doesn't mean that any old solution is as good as any other solution. It doesn't mean that at all. So, okay, so then we're looking at things two ways. We're trying to figure out, well, how does the world present itself, and then how is it that you should act in it? And so... Well, there's other, there's other constraints on the mechanisms of interpretation that you place in the world. So we could say, well, you're constrained in your interpretations by the constraints that other people place on you. But there's internal constraints as well. We talked about those mostly from a biological perspective. Because you could also re regard yourself, in some sense, as a loose internal society. And that's sort of a psychoanalytic dictum, right? You're, you're a collection of sub-personalities, or you could say you're a collection of sub-routines. I, I don't care how you... How, how you uh, formulate it, but you're a unity, but you're a, you're a unity that brings together a plurality of subcomponents. And part of the constraints on how it is that you lay out your interpretation of the world is that you have to satisfy those internal subsystems, right? So you're the ego, but it's more like you're the captain of a, of a ship full of people who are rowing. You've got to keep the people rowing. You're, you're, not, you're not tyrant, you're not omnipotent tyrant of your own destiny. You're constrained by the nature of your own being. 
And so you have to provide yourself with food and you have to provide yourself with shelter and you have to provide yourself with water and, and all of these things and, and those are demands that are laid on you by the nature of your internal processes and of course how they lay themselves out as demands and what the appropriate solutions to that is, to those problems are, is, is debatable infinitely. But you can see the constraints stack up. You have to satisfy your internal constraints. So they have to be brought into a unity. That seems to happen at least in part between the ages of two and something like between the ages of birth and four years old. Maybe even two years old. You bring yourself together into something that's sort of functioning as a unity. Then you have to turn that unity into a unity that can function in the social world in, with increasing breadth. And that unity in the social world has to be a unity that can function inside the natural world. It's something like that. So it's, you're stacking up these games into a hierarchy of increasing complexity. And one of the questions that emerges from that is, well, what should be at the top of the hierarchy? If it's a hierarchical structure, it has to be a hierarchical structure because some things have to be worth doing more than others or you can't act. Which is another thing I really don't like about the postmodernist ethos. Because it claims that value structures are there to eliminate, to exclude and oppress and never once notices that, well, yeah, fair enough, but value structures are also there so that you know which way to walk because you can't figure out which way to walk without saying that that direction is preferable to that direction. So you're stuck with the damn things. And, and they do exclude, obviously, category structures exclude. The question is, if you're going to have a value structure, how is it that it should be con constituted? Well, we already described some of the constraints like if your value structure is perfectly functioning except that you don't get enough to eat, that turns out actually to be a fatal problem, right? And it might be, you can run into all sorts of fatal problems. You're too lonesome. Well, it means you're, let's say, that your value structure is too narcissistic. There's lots of reasons to be lonesome, but that might be one of them. Or you're too timid or something like that. Like, you're going to be informed by your own internal biological mechanisms when the value structure that you're laying out in the world is insufficient to keep itself propagating across time. And some of that's just you, and some of that's other people, and some of that's the natural world. Constraints galore. And so, in the face of all those constraints, it's absolutely unreasonable to say any old solution goes. It's try it. Generate a random solution. Run it as a simulation in the world. And see, and see how many slings and arrows come your way. There'll be plenty. And you might say, well, I don't care about slings and arrows. It's like, yeah, no. That's a claim you don't get to make. So, okay, so you know, you're, you're being informed internally as to the nature of your value structure. You have to specify where you are. You have to specify where you're going. You have to integrate all your underlying biological mechanisms into that, into that schema. It's something I think that's actually kind of weak about the Piagetian idea, say, because Piaget, I, I, I'm a great fan of Piaget, but Piaget tended to think that the child came into the world with nothing but a set of reflexes. I mean, that's his technical claim, and that you bootstrap off those reflexes, and I think that's, it underestimates the degree to which the child comes into the world as an already prepared unit. And, I mean, he just thought of those things as so self-evident that you don't need to talk about them, but that's actually not true. You, you do need to talk about them. We know, for example, that if you provide children with food and shelter, and, and adequate food and shelter, but you don't interact with them socially, almost all of them die in the first year. Right? It's not optional. Touch is not optional for children. Attention is not optional for children. Play is not optional for children. So it isn't just like, well, the child comes into the world with a set of reflexes and can adapt to any old environment. It's like, no, 
the environment has to be structured in a certain way or the child will die and it's very interesting when it comes to things like play and touch because you wouldn't think of those as fundamental necessities right but it turns out that they are if you deprive a child badly enough of play and touch in the first three years of their life even if they survive what comes out at the end of that is often something that's like barely recognizable as a functional human being and cannot be repaired after that point and that, that experiment was done with Romanian orphans back in the, back in the 90s. So it was, a, uh, it was an ugly situation, to say the least. Okay, so now you take these underlying biological systems and maybe they aggregate themselves into something that vaguely looks like your, temperament, your, your five temperamental dimensions. So maybe if you're an extrovert, you're dominated by the dopaminergic system, just like you are as if, if you're high in openness. And if you're, if you're, you know, if you're uh, high in neuroticism, it's mostly that you're dominated by anxiety systems and systems that me me mediate emotional pain. And if you're agreeable, you're dominated by the function of the underlying maternal-slash-care affiliation system but so you could say well you've got these loose you've got a multitude of fundamental biological predispositions that manifest themselves as implicit stories something like that and they organize themselves into the primary temperaments and the primary temperaments are, are, are biasing factors that determine in part the nature of the interpretive structure that you're going to lay out in the world it's not entirely determined by your temperament we know that personality is only predicting you know something like let's say 10% of the variance in most complex social outcomes and and the other elements are well temperamental as you might be you still have to get along with other people and the world so you you know you come in with these internal biases but they ha still have to be modified extensively by your social and your natural surround okay and then you develop your routines from the bottom up as piaget pointed out and sometimes from the top down because now and then you can think yourself into a radical transformation but mostly what you're doing is building the micro units of your interpretive schemas and your behaviors and aggregating them into higher order structures that you can then tag with higher order abstractions and we talked about that you can't tell a three-year-old to clean up his room and the reason for that is he those are empty boxes as far as the kids concerned clean He's doing, he, might, he might have room, he might have that, clean he doesn't have. He might have pick up the teddy bear and put it in that space, right? So that's one of these little micro-routines. And maybe you say, you put 20 of those micro-routines together and now you can say, clean up your room. And basically what you're saying is, here's implement the 10 micro-routines that you've learned. And so a, a well-functioning personality has all the micro-routines in place. That's actually something that you help people with if you're a behavioral therapist, because one of the things you assume if you're a behavioral therapist is that sometimes the reason people aren't doing things is because they don't know how. You know, sometimes maybe the person's depressed but potentially high-functioning. They got all the damn micro-routines. They're well-socialized. They're just dormant. You've got to get them awake again and implementing them. But sometimes you get someone in your, in your practice, say, who's just been neglected like you cannot believe, right? The parents never paid any attention to them or maybe just punished them every time they did something good. That's really fun. And then, you know, they didn't make friends and so they're really, really vague and, and, and poorly articulated. And so then what you do is you work at the bottom of the micro-routines and get them to practice building up all these little attributes that they didn't build up. And, you know, one of the things you can think about in terms of character development is, so now maybe understand something about your own personality. You might say, well, what could you do to improve your personality? And the answer is, develop some of the micro-routines on the other side of the personality distribution. So if you're disagreeable as hell, maybe you could start learning how to do nice things for people. 
And that actually works, by the way. So if you take disagreeable people who are depressed and you get them doing nice things for other people, their depression tends to lift. But then by the same token, if you're agreeable, then you should practice doing some things for yourself and being more tough-minded in your negotiations. And so you can sort of place yourself on the, on the personality trait distribution. You know, you're extroverted. It's like, okay, man, learn to spend some time with yourself, right? You're low in openness. Well, try reading a book that's outside of your, you know, your, your sphere of interest now and then. Um, if you're conscientious, well, you should probably learn how to relax occasionally, and, and so forth. So you can, I think partly what you're doing as you're developing your personality is not moving the mean much, the average, where, you know, where you're located, but you're extending the standard deviation so that you're a bigger bag of tricks than you were before. And I think you can practice that co consciously. It's like, you're hyper-orderly. It's, well, get a dog, you know? Dogs are messy, horrible things, you know? It's just what you need if you're hyper-orderly.